Friends, today is the final Sunday in our Word of the Lord series. As we've heard the tales of Elijah and of Elisha over this past summer, I hope you, like me, have felt inspired by these old and rich stories. This morning's text from 2 Kings 5 is a full one for me. After two semesters of the required Hebrew courses at Western Seminary, I took a Hebrew elective that specifically explored 2 Kings 5. Jed was there as well. We took the class together in August of 2015, and Caitlin just returned a couple weeks ago from the same elective. The official name is Advanced Biblical Hebrew, but we called it Hebrew Camp. It's a 10-day elective located at a retreat center in Three Rivers, Michigan, called the Hermitage. We began our morning with silence. We gathered at 8 a.m. for morning prayers, and that led us into morning class. We had a Hebrew-speaking only lunch, some afternoon free time, followed by two to three hours of working with this text from 2 Kings 5. And then we ate together and celebrated with whatever activity was scheduled for the day. So over the course of 10 days, that is a lot of time spent with our text this morning. And that's on top of dozens and dozens of hours over the summer translating the original Hebrew in preparation for Hebrew camp. So Jed and Caitlin and I have logged a lot of hours with 2 Kings 5, translating it, discussing it, acting it out. So it's impossible for me to separate this text from the intense exposure I had to it and the community that I formed through it. So this morning, I'd like to open with one of those traditional Hebrew blessings that is used specifically before meditating and studying the Torah, God's word. I'll use that as our prayer for illumination, say it for you in Hebrew, and translate it into English. So would you pray with me? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'mitzvotav Vetzivanu, La Asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by his commandments and has commanded us to soak ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. The word of the Lord this morning comes to us from 2 Kings 5. We'll read verses 1 through 14. So hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter 
I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleaned. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleaned? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The heading for this chapter in my Bible, likely your Bible, reads, The Healing of Naaman. And indeed, the commander of the army of Aram is healed of his leprosy in the waters of the Jordan. Immediately following his healing, the text that we didn't read, Naaman publicly testifies that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, and he tries to thank Elijah for this gift by giving him gifts. When Elisha refuses Naaman's treasure, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, tricks Naaman into giving him ten talents of silver and two sets of clothes. Through Elisha, God condemns Gehazi and his descendants by cursing him with Naaman's leprosy. So 2 Kings 5, as a whole, is chiastic. It begins and it ends in the same place. Naaman with leprosy at the beginning, Gehazi with leprosy at the end. And this means that the narrator is drawing our attention to something that happens in the middle of the story. Our more linear way of storytelling, which has a beginning and a middle and an end, reveals the climax or the moral or the takeaway near the end of the story. But within this chiastic structure, which is really common in biblical storytelling, the main point or the thesis, the aha moment for us as the reader is found in the middle, as though we're climbing up to the top of an epiphany mountain and then descending back to reality. So, what is the mountaintop moment for us this morning? 
Many believe the focal point of this narrative is the healing, as our heading suggests. And certainly the healing is physically and spiritually transformational for Naaman. If you go on to read the rest of chapter 5, you'll notice a complete shift in his character after the healing. But I wonder if the moment happens the verse before the healing if God's reconciling nature in the gospel of grace is most explicit, not in the waters of the Jordan, but on the lips of the servant, not through something mighty and miraculous, but from someone humble and kind. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleaned. It's a chilling moment where the blunt and proud and assertive character of Naaman, this larger-than-life, victorious commander who just threw a hissy fit, is lovingly addressed by his servants. This moment is about a man of wealth and status and power realizing he must become less. So I would change the heading. I would call this story Naaman's Descent. I think the story looks like this. Naaman is a leper. He could think about all his accomplishments. He could enjoy his power and position and prestige. He could admire his home and his wealth. But each time he looked at himself, there was something looking back that defined his life. He was a leper. Nothing could change that. Lepers were isolated and humiliated. They were outcasts, the original untouchables. They were forced to wear torn clothing and shout, unclean, unclean, any time they encountered an uninfected person. Leprosy was the most feared disease of the day. It was extremely contagious and in many cases incurable. In its worst forms, leprosy led to death. Granted, Naaman's leprosy was likely in the beginning stages, but it was only a matter of time before his secret becomes public. Naaman clearly shared his secret with the servants. Perhaps Naaman entrusted them with the news from the little girl that there was a prophet in Samaria, the capital of Israel, who could cure him of his leprosy. He was desperate, desperate enough to trust the word of a young foreign captive. Perhaps the servants were there when Naaman spoke with his king about it, and certainly the servants joined Naaman on the journey to Israel. Along the way, perhaps Naaman said to the servants, I will do anything to be healed. Whatever the king or the prophet asks, I will do it. I will speak with them directly, and I will prove to them that I am willing to do whatever it takes, anything to protect what I have become. I will not make this trip for nothing. Because of Aram and Israel's war-torn history and Naaman's success as a commander, perhaps Naaman and the servants were anxious about how they would be received by the king of Israel and Elisha. Earlier in our text, we learned that a band of Aramean raiders kidnapped a young Israeli girl and put her in the service of Naaman's wife. Captives are a sign of a successful raid, a sign of death, rape, and devastation. 
So how would the king and the prophet respond to this top Aramean commander knowing that the people have suffered severely at the hands of Aram? The servants were in the room when the king of Israel tore his robes, thinking Naaman was there to trick him. And when Elisha sent messengers to receive Naaman, and of course the servants saw Naaman's anger with Elisha for suggesting he be healed in Israeli waters. There is tension in this story. The tension of war and power and so much ego. And Naaman wants it to build into this huge moment where everybody knows he is stronger and more impressive than ever before. The man who defeated leprosy. Through his man-made legacy and a beautifully healed body, he could truly be the most revered commander forever preserved at the heights of human achievement and glory. That's the mountaintop moment Naaman wants and the moment many of us want, but it is not the moment God has in mind because wealth and greatness and success are not the focal point of God's story. Elisha asked Naaman to do what he absolutely does not want to do, to wash in the dirty waters of his enemies. And after throwing his fit, it is the servants who bring Naaman words of conviction and calling. My father, will you not do it? If you were willing to do great things, great things, would you not be willing to do this thing? Will you not do it? When we enacted this scene between Naaman and the servants at Hebrew camp, our servant character knelt low before Naaman and whispered the line from verse 13. Avi, devar gadol hanavi, diber elecha halo ta'ase, va'afkimar elecha rahatz utar. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more when he tells you, wash and be cleaned. That is the moment. And when Naaman comes face to face with it, I imagine it took his breath away like a punch in the gut. He was ready and willing to do something great, to be somebody great. But he wasn't prepared to do something small and humble, something without fame and recognition, something private and personal. He hadn't considered the path of healing being one of descent. What the sermons may think of as not a big deal, like washing in the Jordan seven times, that was a big deal to Naaman. When the servants confront him, the gut punch comes from God saying, yeah, this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. This isn't going to look like a kiss on the forehead from the wealthiest of kings or an enlightened prophet dancing and waving his hands around. You can be healed, but not by going up. The servant's words are an invitation to do something Naaman wasn't expecting, but something he needed. An invitation to align himself with the eternal, the abundant, the holy. To go down to wash, to clean, 
And there's no way around it. If he wants to be clean, this is how it must be done. The way of true healing isn't up sometimes, it's down. Probably not expecting much, but knowing he's running out of options, Naaman enters the water and immerses himself seven times. Rising from the water that last time, perhaps foolishly hoping, he finally sees that the leprosy is gone. Naaman becomes clean. His flesh is restored like that of a young boy. Some hear the words young boy and think about childlike faith or innocence, naivete, or being dependent on God like children depend on their parents. Using this lens of interpretation, some pastors preach that the moral of this story is that when we have more faith, if we depend on God more or trust God better or surrender more completely, then we can be healed. I do think that Naaman moved toward faith with each step he took down to the Jordan, but I don't think the moral of this chiastic story is to just have more childlike faith. It's about the descent, not the healing. I think the narrator is using the little boy language to remind us of a specific child, the little girl who opened the story, the little girl who lives in the low places. This little girl is not innocent. She is not naive. She likely witnessed the murder of her family and friends and the rape of every woman she knew. She was stolen from her country and forced to live in the home of her captor. She is a prisoner of war. She's been chewed up and spit back out, a fate she did not deserve. Her literary purpose is to serve as a foil. A foil is a character who contrasts with another character, usually the protagonist, to highlight particular qualities of the protagonist. So sometimes a foil is extremely similar to the protagonist with maybe one key difference setting them apart. But in this case, the foil differs drastically from the protagonist. The little girl is everything Naaman is not. She is poor and disregarded. He is wealthy and esteemed. She is young and enslaved. He is old and free. She is uninfected. He is a leper. She is nameless. He has a name. And yet it is the little girl who speaks words of healing into the life of her enemy. Though she's been dehumanized, terrorized, and surrounded by strangers, an Israeli girl still offers hope to a power-hungry Aramean man. She is washed, and she is clean. She, like the servants, is the shalom in this story. Naaman's gods were wealth and success and glory. And when his leprosy threatened those gods, it completely overturned his world, posturing him perfectly for God's transformative call. Naaman, what are you truly willing to do? Who are you truly willing to become? Who do you truly serve? Naaman expected to ascend on his path to healing and to greatness, but his path to healing would be one of descent, from the throngs of the upper class to the ransacked homes of disregarded little girls, from the wealth and comfort of his native country to the devastated land of his enemies, from health to sickness, from pride to humility. 
Naaman's healing is found in the low places. We've all heard stories about somebody hitting rock bottom and about that low place inspiring them to rise up. In the second half of chapter 5, Naaman does rise up, and it starts with the literal rising out of the Jordan's waters. But he doesn't give up his career and move in with the poorest of the poor. He doesn't sell all his worldly possessions and live as some sort of hermit. As far as we can tell, he returns to his position and to his wealth. But something is different. He has been on the path of descent and found healing. He has done a great thing by becoming less. The question for us is the same question posed to Naaman by the servants. If you're willing to be elevated, are you willing to be humbled? If you're willing to be healed, are you willing to be transformed? If you're willing to be seen by others, are you willing to be seen by God? Are you willing to make the descent again and again and again? Will you not do it? In Philippians 2, we read that our Lord and Savior also made this descent. The text reads, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So friends, in all things, like our Lord and Savior and like Naaman, may we be willing to make the descent. Would you pray with me? Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Asher natan lanu torat emet. Vahaye olam nata batokhenu. Baruch Adonai notain hatarah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who gave us the Torah of truth and planted eternity in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, who gives us the Torah. God, this morning we hear your call to meet you in the low places. We thank you for being a God who is not afraid to meet us there in the places we are most vulnerable, most afraid, and most known. Give us courage and authenticity to make the descent that you might be honored and glorified through our lives. Amen.